Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. All right, we are live. Hello, everybody. We got some folks here on the Zoom machine and others of you that are joining on the various socials uh, on either Facebook or YouTube, Twitter. I don't know if we're live on Threads or TikTok, but some of you might be listening to the recording afterwards. But this is our monthly book club with Red Letter Christians. And it's going to be a really great night. I've got... um all kinds of notes, Andrew. We got Andrew Whitehead. This is the book of the evening, the book we're talking about this month, reading together, some of us. But if you didn't do your homework, it's okay. Just join in, spread the word, share the link. But American Idolatry, sometimes you ignore subtitles, right, Andrew? But this one's really important. How Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and threatens the church. So folks are going to probably trickle in. So I just want to say that as we were reading this, Andrew, I'll, I'll do a little mm. intro in a second, but um, I looked, I looked at my bookshelf and I, <laughs> these are all books that you kind of quote. So I just wanted to say like, y'all, we've done almost every book that I'm showing you has either been a part of book club or they've been, you know, on the podcast or something. So these are books that, have are cited in tonight's book. So the end of White Christian America, Robert Jones just wrote a new book. He's going to be our guest next month for morning prayer. Oh. Uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Chris and Dume. Kristen's also my pickleball partner, Andrew. So um, <laughs> nice. We're some pretty mad pickleball we play. Uh, Christian Imagination by Willie Jennings. He's been on uh, morning prayer with his incredible brother, Lisa Sharon Harper, who's here in Philly. She's on the board of Red Letter Christians. You, you're all on her work. Randall Balmer, Bad Faith. You know, this book's really little, but so powerful. You can grab it if you haven't. Um, How to Fight Racism. You you quote Jamar Tisby, who's a dear friend and brother. We've yeah. done two of his books. We're going to talk about him tonight. Jamar, thank you. Unsettling Truths, Mark, uh, Mark Charles, Sung Shun Ra. But your book, brother, is what we're talking about tonight. And I want to just show your first book, because I think this is, you know, really important that, you know, taking America back for God. We did a, a thing together around this with, uh, you know, Sam Perry, your your partner in your work um, mm-hmm. and in your research. This was kind of a real groundbreaking book to to help define and wrap your wrap our hands around Christian nationalism, um, and shows your research. So we're gonna like nod to that. But if you haven't seen this book, it's a, another great one that we've, you know, featured at Red Letter Christians. Um, but this is. The book that we're talking about tonight, man, and I'm I'm so grateful for your work. I mean, this was really, uh, you know, it, it's part, it's very personal. I mean, you you, it's you know part memoir, so it's building on um, your research, um, but it's also kind of telling a little bit of your own story. And I, you know, I know at one point you said 
after 9-11, you were supportive of the wars. You know, you talk about growing up in Indiana, going on short-term mission trips. So I thought we could start with a little of that, you know, like like why you wrote this book and why you decided not to just make it an academic book, but to tell a little bit of your story. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate you know, the time that I get to be here with you all again, and just to talk about the book. And so, yeah, this book, you know, is really written to an audience um, of fellow Christians. And so I'm, I'm trying to write to those folks that maybe have been on a similar journey to me or folks that I grew up around. So I grew up in Northern Indiana, a rural town, small town, you know, like 1500 people, a couple stoplights, cornfields, you know, manufacturing is the backbone of the community, all those things. And this is where, you know, I went to church, was raised um, in a local church and taught, you know, to love the Bible, love Jesus. And some of those values and beliefs, you know, that, that are so important. Um, and then as I, you know, got older and, and went to college and then ultimately grad school, but just as I grew uh, both as a person and as a Christian, starting to think about, um, you know, my identity as a Christian, what what we hold dear, but then also my identity as an American citizen. And then different moments, thinking about how those maybe intersect um, or maybe are at odds, right? So to be faithful to um, the call of Jesus maybe means that I, you know, can't be as faithful of an American citizen, depending on what, you know, they're asking of us. Um, and so really wrestling with that in, in a couple different moments. Um, so then with this book, it really is kind of the culmination of that personal journey of, of reckoning with this um, belief that the U.S. is a Christian nation and to be a good American is to be Christian and to be Christian you know, or, or the right kind of Christians, you're American um, because God has a special place um, in his plan for the world in, you know, because of the United States, that type of thing. Yeah. And so really wrestling with that, you know, as I was on this faith journey, but then as a, you know, a sociologist studying why Americans do what they do, believe what they believe. And that culminated in, you know, our first book. Um, and so, you know, with that first book, looking at all the evidence that was kind of handed to us and that we were exploring, and thinking about how Christian nationalism and embracing this idea and belief that the U.S. should be, you know, ordered according to this kind of distinct expression of Christianity, um, how it really, you know, threatened these values of democracy, but also these values of that I was taught growing up in the church of how to love our neighbor and and who is our neighbor, how to love God and what does that mean? And, and so that, you know, this book is kind of the culmination of both those journeys and, and the fact that, you know, they're, they're really speaking to each other. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, that was, you know, the fun part, the hard part, exciting part, scary part, you know, all those are wrapped up in it, but yeah, that's just a bit of kind of my, my background in history. Yeah, it's real helpful. And we'll get back to that. But, you know, I think one of the thing uh, things that you um, you, you kind of helped us understand is like how uh, th there's a lot of people that throw this idea around of Christian nationalism mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of blur the line between patriotism and nationalism and why, you know, um, all, all that. And, and, you know, you've kind of created some of these handholds that are real indicators. They put teeth on it a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. things like 
How, um, do you believe that the uh, founding documents of America were inspired by God? You know, do you believe that the United States have, has a messianic role to play in in the eschaton, the end of history? You know, do you yeah. you think that um, you know, even having the flag on the altar, and you know, do you believe that the the founders of America were Christian, and you know, we we need to take America back for Christ? And so, you know, w- without getting too deep into all yeah. the, I mean, because your first book has all of that, you know, the the, um, but it is helpful to have a little definition to like mm. what we mean by Christian nationalism. What are some of uh, the the litmus test? You know, what are some of the indicators? The lights on the radar. You know, you might right. be a Christian nationalist if uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I define Christian nationalism through that work with Sam and others as the desire for uh, the fusion between American identity and the nation and its identity with a, a particular expression of Christianity and that the government should uphold this particular expression of Christianity as the cultural framework that organizes civil life in the U.S. And mm. so it's really important to kind of point to that that phrase of a particular expression of Christianity, because when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it isn't talking about all of Christianity or every type of expression, but really a particular type, because as we know, there are, you know, a number of different expressions of Christianity probably represented, you know, here in this Zoom room tonight. Mm. Um, and this one is looking at one that brings with it what I like to call, you know, cultural baggage. It brings with it, it's not just these historic Orthodox beliefs of Christianity, although it contains those, it brings with it this other cultural baggage where it's it's very focused on a society that uh, adheres to a strict moral hierarchy around who should be at the top, who's in the middle, and who's at the bottom. It has a comfort with authoritarian social control. So it sees the world as chaotic, and sometimes we need strong rulers and strong rules to come in and enforce a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It also brings with it this element of strict boundaries around national identity that fall along racial and ethnic lines. And so when, when folks in this expression of Christianity are talking about a Christian nation, it's unspoken, but we know through our studies what they're imagining is a white Christian nation where mm-hmm. white Americans are at the ideal. They're at the top and others come after. And then yeah. finally, another cultural element is this kind of populist impulse where feeling as though you're a victim and that elites are coming after you and it opens people up to conspiratorial thinking and and constantly feeling like they're persecuted. And so all that wrapped up together with some other stuff, this is that cultural baggage that gets added on to some of those historic Christian beliefs. And, and what we find over and over is that Christian nationalism as that cultural framework really does um, influence folks to see the world in a particular way, to see their neighbors and and who gets defined as the us and yeah. who gets defined as the them. It really has a lot to say about that. And so, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk more and, and as we can explore it, um, that's where for me as a Christian, starting to think through, well, what does the gospel say? And then how yeah. does this expression of Christianity and Christian nationalism within it, how does it, you know, conflict with that? And that's, I think, where, yeah, this book comes from and this desire to kind of speak to fellow Christians about it. Yeah. And and I think that the, the you know, as Jesus said, the tree is known by its fruit. And, and right. when you look at the fruit of this, I mean, one of the things that your work and Sam's work does so well is like show that this is a key predictor mm. and some uh, and a consistent predictor in some of the most horrifying um 
and and alarming and also unchristlike uh, attitudes and policies in our country. Things like, um, and I don't want to use just big words. I want to be really practical about it. So Islamophobia is real. But the way that you really put a finger on that is by saying, you know, are you uncomfortable of a mosque being in your your area? Um, You know, xenophobia, you know, fear of other people or of immigrants. But you, you I mean, one of the things that was so alarming as we look about this is some of these things are like interracial marriage or, you know, mm-hmm. but some of them, like one of the one of the things that you 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 really cite is that white evangelicals um, that would adhere to Christian nationalism, many of them um, are the only group that had a majority, 55 percent of them that supported passing a law that would prevent all refugees from entering the United States. I mean, that's a really concrete thing, right? So like all over scripture, and you do this in the book, it talks about how we should welcome foreigners as as if they were our own flesh and blood, because we were once foreigners in the land of Mm -hmm. Egypt. You know, the New Testament says that when we show hospitality to the stranger, we might be entertaining uh, angels unaware, right? That Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. I mean, this is one of the most fundamental holy Christian practices showing hospitality to the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee. And yet white evangelical Christians are the only group that a majority said, we don't want any refugees coming in our country. So, I mean, that that's why this is so important. This isn't just about ideologies, but this is right. has real life uh, implications, right? Yeah, no, it really does. And and you touched on a number of those. And I think, you know, as as I could just list those off, that's where for me, seeing that evidence stack up really starts to make me think through, well, then, you know, what am I doing? You know, where is this influencing me? Right. Because some of our work shows that it isn't just an either or it's that people can embrace it more or less strongly. And so too, just being aware of now where where is this influencing me and how I see the world, how I see my neighbor? Because it does have real world implications for refugees, uh, for immigrants, um, for racial and ethnic minorities, for, li- for religious minorities, um, for those around us who might differ from us in various ways. Um, it really does serve as kind of, you know, this lens through which a lot of American Christians see the world and see themselves and see each other. And as we look around us and we think of, well, what are we called to do uh, in loving our neighbor and loving God? This is one of those things that I think is very powerful and in some ways taken for granted. And I think that's what makes it so powerful is that Mm. for a lot of folks, this is just Christianity, right? I've had even family members say, you know, are you still a Christian when I speak out against Christian nationalism? Because for them, they're just one and the same. And that I think it's the work of us as Christians to speak out against it most forcefully and to say that, you know, it isn't as though these folks just aren't Christians because they hold historic Orthodox beliefs. They're in congregations, they're, they're doing all that, but we need to help them disentangle those aspects, those that cultural baggage that comes with Christian nationalism. We need to let them know this can be laid aside (laughs) and you can move towards other expressions of Christianity that allow you to hold on to the faith you hold dear, but I think expand this desire for f- common flourishing, the common good for those who are marginalized, those who are hurting. This can be a part of what we do. Whereas in the past, I think American Christians or white American Christians, you know, there have been times where we failed miserably to really see 
those around us as our neighbor, as Jesus talked about. Yeah, uh, that word you used, disentangle. I I, I, I highlighted that on my notes because you use it through the book, you know, this Mm -hmm. idea. And and one of the things that you say is to give up on Christian nationalism is not to give up on Christianity. Uh, And in fact, you know, one of the things that we've said at Red Letter Christians is, you know, giving up on uh, abandoning like like Trump evangelicalism Mm -hmm. is for most folks is not the end of their faith, but it can be a reclamation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the beginning of a really authentic faith. And, you know, when you talk about disentangling, I think one of the things that you name so well, that is such a passion of ours at Red Letter Christians, is that what's at stake in all this is really the integrity of the Christian witness. And part of why you speak so passionately as a lover of Jesus and a follower of Jesus is that the credibility of our witness has been compromised in some ways by really public vocal expressions uh, uh, from Christian leaders, from um, some really prominent folks with a big microphone that may not represent uh, many of us, but they sure are loud sometimes. And it can feel like they eclipse or kind of colonize Mm -hmm. the, uh, the narrative of, of Christians in public. Um, and, you know, I, I think kind of naming it as another gospel is important. Now, I always, I'll, I'll be honest, Andrew, when I talk about Christian nationalism, I put the Christian in quotes. <laughs> but one of the the arguments that you make is that it's important to, um, to claim all of Christianity, even the bad stuff. I kind of wonder what that looks like for someone who's not a white evangelical, right? Like, um, uh, like black women of, you know, women of color and black women in particular have been the moral conscience. I mean, even as we think of 80% of white evangelicals that supported Trump and his policies, like it's almost the exact opposite, you know, 70 to 80% of African-American women that were the resistance and the force against Trump, many of them because of their faith, right? They were women in church on Sunday morning. And so you know, what is it, how do we kind of navigate that, right? That we we don't want to like judge people, but a tree is known by its fruit. And there's not much that's Christ-like about this version of, you know, I think it's a Christian heresy, but um, how do we, you know, how do you navigate that? Especially for folks that are outside of white evangelicalism that might want to make sure we put the Christian in quotes when we're talking about Christian nationalism. Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying. And I think that's why, you know, thinking of the audience is so important. I think for me as a as a white Protestant man, I think in a lot of ways I'm I'm writing to other white Christians and and not all, um, but the you know, the data show the the likelihood of of white American Christians at some point embracing this or, you know, thinking through um their faith through these terms is, is rather high. And it isn't as though that doesn't exist in, in racial and ethnic minorities. It does, but it is at a somewhat lower level, but it does look different among those groups. And so I think all of that is true. Um, I think particularly though, for, for, you know, people that grew up or, you know, had similar experiences to me, I think then it's really incumbent on us because we can see that how the U S is structured, how it's worked generally works in our favor, right? There's very few times in my life that there were political laws or or resolutions or anything happening that really, you know, affected me directly or put me kind of, you know, under the microscope or, or could have really harmed me in any way. 
Mm. Um, there, you know, is one that happened later in my life as I had kids with disabilities, but for me personally, I was never really under threat. So I think that's when it's so easy to have blinders to the experiences of those outside of, of that realm, right? And as you're pointing out, for Black women, Black men, racial and ethnic minorities, immigrants, refugees, um, folks like that, they're able to speak so clearly about how this world operates and how it operates differently for them than it does for me. And so I think then it's really incumbent to listen to those voices, follow that leadership, um, you know, uh, Dr. Anthea Butler, who's there, you know, in Philadelphia, she's written some great. We did uh, her book for uh, book club too. Yeah, 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 yeah. White evangelical racism, and you know, she's been such a great person to read and follow. And you know, interacting with her um, was so helpful because there were times where, you know, we're bringing our research to bear, and and she is essentially, you know, said, you know, we knew this long ago, right? Like yeah. they've seen it. She's seen it clearly. And it just, most people weren't listening, you know, and I was probably a part of that. Others were too. And so at that point, then we have to, you know, move forward. So I think it is important. Um, I think one mistake we can make is to try and say, well, those folks who embrace this aren't Christians, because then it kind of lets us off the hook. And I think that's where I'm trying to make the point of, we have to own all of it and, and take responsibility, even if we weren't the ones doing it. Um, we're still kind of a part of this story and those that are on the outside of it or who have suffered from it, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think I've heard from them that it, you know, it, it hurts them to think that we can just say, well, those folks aren't it because we're able to kind of define them away. And then we, you know, we don't take responsibility. Um, that may not be our intention, but that's how it seems. And so I think that's where I want us to say, listen, you know, and that's why I don't like to label folks Christian nationalist. I like to talk about Christian nationalism, right. Mm-hmm. right? I like to talk about this cultural framework because again, people embrace it to different levels and it doesn't mean that they'll always be that. And we don't want to just essentialize them as, you know, this and that's it. But these are folks that for many of them are trying to live out their faith you know, in a faithful manner, but this is all they've been given, right? These are the narratives yeah. they've heard, the media they consume, the, you know, the religious leaders they follow. These are the only stories they've been handed. So then I think that's when we can say, look, there's better stories. There's better narratives. There's yeah. other ways to do this. And and I think that's part of, part of it is, is knowing what the problem is, naming it, seeing what it is. And then the other part, I think that we have to be involved in now is, is building something better, right? Moving yeah. forward, telling better narratives. And that's part of the work that you do and Red Letter Christians and um, others are involved in that. And so I think that's part of, of of where we're at now and where we, you know, hopefully we'll go. Yeah. Uh, Reverend Barber, you know, has been, he's kind of the bishop of Red Letter Christians. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, um, he, he says the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators, mm. uh, right? And that's a big part that's of great. what we're doing at Red Letter Christians. You're one of those, you know, folks that are singing the same song of Jesus and justice, but we're, 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 we're not homogenizing, but harmonizing, right? And we're putting yeah. our voices together. Yeah, um, that's great. And, and, you know, Jamar Tisby is another one of those. And I, I just wanted to read this, this line that you quote um, on page 150 of Jamar's. It's a beautiful line. He, he yeah. says, um, said this in an NPR podcast, we need to widen the aperture of Christianity. The entire story is not white Christians or Christian nationalists. The black church has always seen a connection of faith and politics, but to achieve 
much diff- different ends. So yeah. I love that widen the aperture, yeah. you know, that to 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 say that we refuse to let uh, this version of uh, evangelicalism colonize the whole spiritual landscape of and the beautiful things that God's done. And those, you know, tracks that John and Wilson Hartgrove names is kind of slaveholder and the enslaved, you know, have these yeah. parallel versions of mm. Christianity. Uh, Frederick Douglass named that, right? There's, there's a very different version of Christianity uh, <laughs> in America than the Christianity of Christ. And so yeah. we've got to kind of name that uh, paradox, yeah. Really, that's that's, you know, centuries old that there's been these competing um, competing narratives of what Christians are about. And, you know, I think of that verse from Galatians that, um, uh, you know, begins Galatians that, that uh, you know, I don't assume everybody, you know, grew up in Sunday school. So I'll just read it to us this morning but it's, or this evening. But it says, I am astonished. This is the book of Galatians in the New Testament. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Woo! Come on, somebody. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and you quote Colossians, right? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. So the irony is that, you know, as Amanda Tyler from Christians Against Christian Nationalism says, there are a lot of folks using Jesus as the mascot, mm. uh, but not as the model, right? Not not really as our example for how we live, the Beatitudes, the, you know, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount as really our framework for how we live in the world. And that's part of the problem, right, is when Jesus becomes the mascot, Christianity just becomes kind of flat one-dimensional doctrines on paper that are not um, influencing the way that we live and interact in the world. And mm-hmm. so I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that, but you really, you do you do a great job kind of showing the problem, diagnosing the problem. Um, and this is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is, is right on because, you know, in the book, I tried to just really bring up, you know, the teachings of Jesus, examples from Jesus's life, um, and really just stick to that because there are many others throughout, obviously, the New Testament. But just looking at that, looking at these stories, where he was, how he treated people, what he was saying and doing, right there, I think it really highlights how. You know, what, Christian- what would Jesus do, right? The bracelets <laughs> we had in high school, right? <laughs> yeah, I grew up with that. I grew up with that. Um, but it really highlights um, where and how Christian nationalism draws us away from following this example. And I think, you know, for me, I even write this in the book, and I'm sure you feel the same way, when we really think through what Jesus is calling us to, um, it can be, it should be scary, right? Because it really does call us to something very different mm. than what kind of you know, the kind of standard American, you know, narrative is. And so for me, it's really highlighting how with Christian nationalism, the Christian gospel, and this is something I grew up on, is really limited to a very particular understanding of the gospel, one that's overly spiritualized. And I think this is what you were kind of mentioning, right? Where you know, as, as we look at Luke, when Jesus, um, you know, came to the synagogue, he's quoting Isaiah, 
And, you know, for me growing up in the churches that I grew up in, when he's saying, you know, I came to set the oppressed free and the captives free and so that the blind may see and, you know, bring healing and, mm. and all of these things. Um, when, when he's saying that growing up, I would have thought, and I was kind of taught, well, this is means spiritually, right? That he came to save your individual soul. You put your faith in him. You're going to go to heaven someday. But I think while the gospel is a part of that, it is personal. There is a spiritual aspect, but it's so much fuller than that. And I think with Christian nationalism, it really wants to focus just on that because if we over-spiritualize the gospel, then we can remain blind to the the inequality, the the way that sin saturates our world now and how Jesus came to change and redeem how we interact together, how we organize our social lives, because we should take it literally when he says, yeah. I came to set the oppressed free, when I came to heal the blind, when I when he came to do these things, he was talking about real people, real structures, real oppression, and that we can be a part of that. So when he taught us to pray and said, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you know, if we over-spiritualize the gospel, it's all someday in the future, right? In mm. the air up there. But yeah. no, he's saying, may that kingdom come here. And not that we're going to be able to, through politics, solve all social problems, or that should be our hope. But that as Christians and steps of faith, that we can be involved in the world around us with the hope and the faith that what we do can help bring the marginalized from the margins to set, you know, help hopefully set the oppressed free to bring them into the many benefits that we get to enjoy or that I've enjoyed, right? Of being an American citizen. It isn't perfect, but there are a lot of good things in that we can bring a fullness and a flourishing to more people. And so when we yes, think of Lord. the gospel, I think seeing in that fullness, that it isn't just this overly spiritualized aspect, but to confront Christian nationalism is to take the wholeness of the gospel and what Jesus came to do and, and commanded us to do likewise. Woo! Andrew Wyatt bringing the word tonight, bringing the fire. If y'all are just joining, we got a, we're, we're talking about American idolatry and um, you know, th this, uh, what you're saying is it's it gets you know it's easy to get lost in this uh you know blurring of Jesus with uh America's America Christian nation and I mean we kind of forget that the word Christian means Christ like so um I mean, you know, how much are we staying true to the things that Jesus talked about? I mean, Jesus is really clear in Matthew 25 that all the nations will be judged, uh, not by how the Dow Jones is doing, but how the least of these are doing, right? Like we're going to be, we're going to be asked by God, um, as, as my friend Tony Campolo says, you know, he goes, when we're, when we're gathered before God in Matthew 25, it's not just a doctrinal test that God asks us virgin birth. Did you agree, disagree, or strongly disagree? You know, but we're going to be asked when I was in need of health care, did you take care of me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? Did you visit me in prison? When I was hungry, did you feed me that really how, um, how true we are to our faith has direct uh, implications mm. on how it matters to the most vulnerable people in our society. Mm. And, you know, as you talk about theology, I think, you know, one of the things that we've done is we've kind of divorced um, things that were never meant to be separated, right? Personal salvation and mm. social transformation, or as scripture talks about 
faith and works or loving God and loving people that these, mm-hmm. these things have to be held together like sides of a coin or like blades of scissors, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the places that you really bring this home is this, this, um, uh, well, I mean, you cite a study um, uh, in 2020 that was around police violence after George Floyd, George Floyd's murder. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of Christians have a theology that leads them to think that people are sinful. People do bad things, um, even when it comes to systemic injustice, right? Like mm-hmm. policing, there's a few bad apples. Now, I mean, there's some comedians that have pointed out that some jobs you can't have bad apples. Like, um, you know, United Airlines can't say, you know, most of our pilots are pretty good. You know, they know how to land a plane, but there's a right. few that haven't quite got that down. You know, like you you can't do that. And Policing is arguably one of those. When you have a gun, like there's not a lot of margin of error. Um, and and yeah. so there's a lot to, to unpack in this. But this is what stunned me is that um, 72% of white evangelicals said that this these are isolated incidents of mm-hmm. police, mis, you know, bad policing. Mm-hmm. But this is what was really broke my heart, that even just when you look at white Americans that are unaffiliated with faith, that number sunk to over half, like 30%, you said, of white unaffiliated Americans said these are isolated incidents. So twice that number doubled when mm-hmm. wh- the white folks are Christians. And that's why this Christian piece of it, the theology piece of it, there is a part that's about race, right? Mm-hmm. That we're we're seeing through, like where we sit determines what we see. Yeah as white folks or, or as people of color, but there's also this other layer, right. Of theology that when you believe that like sin doesn't affect systems, only individuals mm-hmm. that has real life implications too. Right. It sure does. Yeah, no, that's right on. And I think that's the part too, where I feel like, you know, sociology can be a, a gift to yeah. us to help us see how social systems aren't just um, a bunch of people added together, but are the result of decisions made. And over time, they can function in such a way that return results that are detrimental to different groups, even if the people living and working and and yeah, living in these systems don't hold those beliefs. So you can have a system that you know treats white people one way and and racial minorities another way even if the people in that system aren't actively trying to do that because the system was built to do that. And so that's where, you know, we can think of this as in terms of, you know, pulling somebody out of the river and you see they're, they're struggling. Um, And that's good. That's, you know, we could look at that as charity. Like we need to do that. We need to pull them out, but then you see another person and another person, another person, and we're trying to pull them out. And there's only so many people we can pull out, but Mm. then we need to start to ask the question, why are they falling in the river upstream in the first place? And can we go there and can we fix that? Can we keep them from falling in so that we aren't just trying to meet the needs as they come, although we should, but we can fix whatever is causing these people to suffer in this way. So whether it's policing, and again, that you know is a big issue, very yeah. complicated, 
but um, we can look at how can we work at this. We can look at how um, folks apply for loans, you know, for homes, because we know there's racial disparities there. We can look at how for African-American women in the U.S., they're more likely to die in childbirth than white American women. Um, their babies are more likely to die in the first year than, than white uh, babies, right? So there are racial disparities across our country. And so starting to think of how and why is the system built in this way? And again, as you said, a, a gospel, a theology that is overly spiritualized and very individualized, and a number of books and studies have shown this, it really encourages white evangelicals, and, and I would broaden that to those that embrace Christian nationalism, to see the world in a very individualistic lens and to stay kind of ignorant and blinded to how systems operate because mm. the systems have always generally worked for them. Yeah. Right Until the system turns on you, you have no reason to question it. You have no reason to know it exists because it's working, right? And it's doing what it was designed to do. And so that's where I think for those of us who have grown up relatively privileged, um, that's where we have to do the work of really listening to those who can tell us and help us to see the reality, right? So, mm. you know, as you were citing some of those books, um, you know, Jamar Tisby, he helps me see Right. I've never had that embodied experience like him, but reading and listening and learning from him now I can see and he helps me to yeah. do that. And so that's where I think for me, that work starts to to happen and, and that we need to be a part of and, and a journey that I'm still on and and others will be on, will be on together because right, new things are going to arise. And so as as Christ followers in the world being ready to meet those needs and to see, well, how can we serve this community? It isn't just this one person suffering, but they're part of a community. And there's a reason why these folks are more likely to be suffering. So what can we do for them? And I think yeah. that's part of a part of what we need to do as we confront and oppose Christian nationalism. So good. And, and, and you do it, you got so much grace for folks as you talk, you know, as you write this book, I think you, I mean, it helps that you share your own story, how, you know, um, you, you've, you've used some of these same arguments, you've read scripture in some of these same ways, like you, you swam, you, you swam in the water, you know, that we're right. trying that got us sick. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, one of the images you give that's so beautiful is you say this getting freeing ourselves from Christian nationalism is going to be um, less like an amputation and more right. like flossing. I read my wife that, no, <laughs> um, you know, like, so say a little bit more about that. And even like your own journey in that is, is it's not, it's not just that you're going to cut this limb off and then boom, we're done. Right. But it's more like yeah. flossing. It's an ongoing process. Yeah, yeah, I've heard I heard somebody and I wish I could cite exactly who they were probably borrowing it too, but talking about you know responding to racism in the same way. And I think Christian nationalism is just like that where it isn't something that we just solve and now we're good. Um but yeah, it is like flossing. It's a daily um you know uh activity that we take on to try and continue to actively be aware of and move in a direction that um yeah, is focused on expanding the us and who is us um, and trying to, you know, minimize the them and and really see what we're here to do and why and how to help folks. Um, because I think the moment we think we've arrived, I think that's when we have blind spots. And I know that's true in my own life. So, you know, there are aspects for me of, of just other groups that have been marginalized 
um, experience oppression, are are struggling under the weight, and saying that you know they they love living in this country, and and I think this is a broader conversation too of if we're you can be patriotic and Christian. That is mad because patriotism, I think, is love of our countrymen and women and wanting to see people flourish and and loving your country is telling the truth about it. And part of telling that truth is listening to those voices where they're saying, hey, this country, it doesn't work the same for me. Um, And I think being really attuned to that and, and trying to do that, it is a it's a daily thing and it's working every day to try and listen and think through, well, what are the implications of this? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's moments where we just have to sit with it for a while. You know, I, we don't arrive quickly. It is a journey. And so, you know, I think having, there are times, you know, Shane, I don't know if this is true for you, but there's times where I look back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And I, there are times where I have to have some grace for where I was too. Right. Because yeah. for most folks, this is what we were handed. This is what I was given. Um, and so I can't blame other people for now, maybe still embracing it to a certain extent, um, because again, this is what we have been given. And so, you know, as you said, changing the narration, changing the narrators, you know, all of this apart is a part of that work and that journey. So, yeah, it's it's ongoing and every day. Uh, I, I was, uh, I mean, one of the things that that your first book did was it, it sort of. Um, differentiated between how much you've embraced this. And that was pretty helpful, right? You you use yeah. the language of ambassadors, the real champions of Christian, Christian nationalism and the accommodators, right? The folks Dr. King would call kind of the white moderates, the folks who their silence or their complicity yeah. um, is in, in a sense, an endorsement or, you know, like continues to uh, push that. And, um, you know, I, 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 but you do point out that there's this, this, dance, you know, like 60%, I was stunned by that statistic, 60% of churches have the American flag on the altar. And I I have a, I have a difficulty with, I, I know there's a difference between nationalism and patriotism. You, you probably know I've got my kind of anarchistic tendencies over here yeah. um, in the Shane Claiborne world. But I, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've always liked that statement that a love for our own people is not a bad thing, but our love should never stop at the border. Yeah, and part yeah. of what it does is, you know, even patriotism, as Mother Teresa says, is is when we draw a circle around our family that's too small, yeah. right? We, we like we do that with our own biological family. We do that with our national family sometimes. And I, I mean, I think that to be born again is to love beyond borders. Is to not have our love limited to our own national, you know, identity or our own biological identity. But I kind of wonder. Do, I mean, do you think that? congregation should consider taking down the flag from the altar just to be transparent. I do, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know. Like, what do you think? No, I, no, I agree. I a hundred percent agree. And I think this is where, you know, I use this example in the book. This is where we can see how much of an idol patriotism or, or Christian nationalism can become is when we move that even, you know, I've heard of pastors that don't move it even out of the whole sanctuary, but maybe just put it at the back and there's an uproar. And, you know, they'll make a joke where if you want to anger, you know, half your congregation, try to move the flag. And I think that's true, but I think that is really instructive, right? It really shows clearly why, you know, why would people be upset? So what does that say about the Christian faith and what that flag means in the context of their worship, right? And so that should trouble us because mm. if you were someone coming from another country, that flag would be uh, jarring to you because what does it have to do with worship 
of, yeah. of the Christian God. Um, yeah. And I was talking with a journalist from Australia. She's lived in the U.S. now for 15 years. But she said when she first came and saw a flag up at the front, it, it really was jarring for her. Like she, mm. it really was wild. But now that she's lived here for a while, she's like, I have to confess. Now I just don't see it. Right. Just like most folks, it's just a part of what's there. And so I think that's where, you know, it isn't just, I think one way to love those around us who by historical accent have been born here as well as a part of, you know, we could call that patriotism, but I think too, it's to ensure that we don't do it then to the detriment of everyone else in the world, right. To, yeah. to elevate the nation in any way, um, over and above others and to just keep it all for ourselves. I think that's, that's Christian nationalism at work. And so it's I think really that's good, where we man. want to really open it up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I noticed that one of our uh, viewers uh, pointed out that um, uh, a lot of the American flag is not displayed in, in most black churches. And I, I right. don't know, you know, that 60% statistic, um, do you know how that breaks down when you get outside of kind of the white mainline, white evangelical to more um, to, to, you know, the historic black church or other, you know, not predominantly white churches? You know, I could look it up. Um, and if you talk for a little bit, I could look it up because um, I can get access to it off the top of well, my head. Know, I don't yeah, know. But, it is interesting. But yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that we suggested is if you're going to have a flag, have every flag of every nation in the world, you know, because the Bible doesn't say God so loved America. It says God so loved the world. So let's be, you know, global Christians and not center America. I mean, really, that's part of some of this is, is it, it, you know, you use the word idolatry. And I want to talk about that, you know, for for a minute because that that's a big word. And and um, you know, I think idols are things that we you know attribute this sacred reverence to. And certainly, um, the flag can become an idol, right? I mean, idols are things that you are willing to die for, kill for, sacrifice your children for. Um, and I mean, just to make it plain, I, I brought something. I, I ran out to my shop, Andrew, and I brought this because my buddy Rob Shank, he may be a friend of yours too, but he, he um, gave me this Bible case. And and just to be fully, um, because this is a safe place tonight, Andrew, this looks yeah. exactly like the Bible case that I took to high school. And mm -hmm. I was all about, you know, bringing the Bible, bringing prayer back in school. But um, Rob told me, he said, this is the number one, selling Bible case in America. And then, you know, I was like, okay, no big deal. And he said, open it up. And when you open it, you, you see that it was made, you know, not for a Bible at all, but it's, it's a concealed carry case yeah. um, camouflaged as a, as a Bible case. Right. And like, so it is not extreme to say this is idolatry. Like guns yeah. have become idols, things that we, and they make these promises that only God can fulfill we we you know put our faith in them right and you kind of name that um th this idolatry and so maybe say a little bit more about um why you use that word i mean it's in your title right american idolatry yeah yeah so real quick to put a bow on the question so oh, okay. yeah, yeah looking at this data and again this was collected um in 2000 the last time we have this data was collected, I think, in 2006, 2007. Um, and so when we look at uh, religious groups, um, those that have the flag in their main worship space, when we look at white conservative evangelical congregations, it's right around 70%. 
white liberal or moderate Protestant congregations right around 74%, black Protestant congregations, 37%. Mm. So half as many, which that's a huge drop. And so it's true in, in black Protestant churches in the US, much less likely to have the flag there. And that should be instructive as well, right? Why yeah, is that? Yeah. What does that tell us? Um, yeah. So I just wanted to provide that data because I'm a data guy anyway. So um, yeah. yeah. So with the book, American Idolatry, yeah. Trying to think of power, fear, and violence and identify these as idols of Christian nationalism. And, you know, as you already kind of said, idols are these things that promise us protection and provision other than God, things we look to, to gain those things other than God. Um, but they require allegiance. They require something of us. And so I think when we look at power and self-interested power um, within Christian nationalism, this is one of the key idols. Um, it's it's saying you can be able to have control and to make the world as you want it that benefits you. And I try to really focus on a self-interested power because um, yeah. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, you know, our common friend, he's been really helpful to me and pointed out that, you know, when we look at minority Christian communities, they would never say, and we should never tell them, oh, just let go of power because you'll hear that right? Among some folks where they're like, well, I don't do power. That's how I keep away from Christian nationalism. But it's a self-interested power. It's a power only to serve us. That's what we need to be aware of because power used to broaden justice and to allow other folks to flourish, that I think is a right use of power. Um, And I was just looking today at a quote from um, Dr. King, where he talked about that, that power rightly applied with love is justice, mm. right? And yeah. bringing justice. And that's where we can look at the Black church tradition that has been so instructive and helpful. Um, it's power applied to ensure all have access to the good um, and, and a flourishing. So when we're scared of losing that self-interested power, then we turn to fear and threat. And this draws yeah. really sharp boundary lines. And this is something that you were mentioning where it brings up the dividing walls of hostility and it shows who we are and who they are, who are coming to take our power and our privilege and our, you know, what we see as the blessings of, of wherever we're at. And so when we do that, that makes us essentially turn to dehumanizing those who we say are them, right? These outsiders. And when we do that, when we're concerned about self-interested power, and then we respond to this fear and threat that draws us in and puts up walls, mm-hmm. then the natural outcome is the third idol, violence where we're going to be willing through the threat of violence or through actual violence to defend those lines um, and to ensure that they, quote unquote, can't come and, and take what we believe is rightfully ours. And so as we look through the history of American Christianity, we can see power, fear, and violence over and over drawing the hearts away of of American Christians or white American Christians that allows for this inequality, these systems of oppression to, to continue to exist and to continue to, in many ways, destroy lives of those who are marginalized. Um, and so that's, yeah, what I explore throughout. And I think it, it really gets kind of symbolized and lived out when we look at racism and xenophobia, fear of immigrants and refugees, which are the last two chapters. Yeah. And I think of that, uh, that scripture, that beautiful promise that love casteth out fear, you know, and, and these really do feel like opposing forces uh, in America right now. And, you know, yeah. I, 
I, I learned one version of spiritual warfare growing up, and I, I still believe in spiritual forces and angels and demons and all that. But I also uh, believe that some of those forces are at work in our country right now are are really those principalities and powers of fear and love. And what does it look like when fear is really the shaping um, force behind our language and our policy making. Yeah. And what is it, what does it look like to imagine? And you do this in your book to imagine a country where love mm. is the compelling force that whether it's immigration or um, uh, food stamps or, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, guns that we're saying, what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself and to form policies that, are centered around our neighbor flourishing. And, mm. and, you know, one of the things that you, 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 you use the language that when you embrace Christian nationalism, you become more comfortable with violence. It's mm. a powerful thing. I mean, I've, I've seen the studies on um, people's support of torture, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, around the Iraq war and, you know, some of the, the just scandalous, terrible things that happened at the hands of the U S government there. Um, but um, we also think of our infatuation with guns, the death penalty, you name all these in the book. But there's yeah. just, you know, there's the extremes. And I, I, in a second, you know, my last question I'm going to ask in a second is about um, Russell Moore versus Al Mower, you know, because there's these these different. But, I mean, the extremes are real, right? You quote um, uh, Charles Herbster, I think it was, that ran for governor in Nebraska, and he mm-hmm. was endorsed by Trump, and he said, if you want to come in, you need to honor God, you need to honor the flag, and you need to learn to speak English. And mm-hmm. he he ran for governor. I mean, these, these are real, like they're extremes, but they're like, this is happening in our country, right? And one of those extremes is uh, Representative Lauren Boebert, right, um, mm-hmm. that uh, said this on Twitter. She said, on Twitter, a lot of the little Twitter trolls, they like to say, oh, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. How many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? Well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. Hmm. And there's that old saying from George Bernard Shaw that God made us in his image and we decided to return the favor. If you don't like Jesus dying on the cross, you know, yeah. then you, you recreate Jesus uh, mm-hmm. uh, having an AR-15. And I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that Kristen Dumay says, you know, is it's not that folks thought that John Wayne was a savior or that Donald Trump is the actual Messiah. But the problem is that people wish that the Savior, Jesus, looked yeah. more like John Wayne or Donald Trump. We want a Savior, some people do, that um, doesn't turn the other cheek, but that stands his ground. In fact, that carries an AR-15 and takes some people out. Yeah. And so you recreate the gospel so that it's not a gospel, the gospel of Jesus at all, but it's the gospel of the NRA or the gospel of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you 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 do such a great job of that. I don't if you know if you want to say more about it, but why you know these extremes? Uh, you know, not everybody was a part of the KKK or war hoods, but th- there was so much more going on in the culture that the extremes kind of showed a version of this. But Christian nationalism is not a fringe movement, right? It's not just a, these extremists that took over the Capitol at January 6th. It was that expression of it. But there's mm. a whole lot of folks that accommodate it and that mm. kind of 
nod their heads at certain things that that lend to towards that extremism, right? Yeah, no, I think so. And I think, you know, we're looking at Christian nationalism and we see it as a spectrum and, and many Americans embrace it somewhere in the middle, right? And so a lot of folks didn't make their way to the Capitol, right? And we can acknowledge that it was a minority, but Christian nationalism created this broad you know, permission structure, this theology that allowed for that extremism to take root and to then bloom. And you have to, we have to ask ourselves, why were they so comfortable carrying crosses and Bibles and having signs that said, Jesus saves, right? Have we made it clear enough that Jesus, you know, that there are expressions of Christianity, like, you know, we would quote a Jamar Tisby earlier, there are other expressions that would never, ever allow for that to take place. And I think that's where it's part of speaking that narrative and doing it firmly, gently, but loud enough to be heard and to continue to do that work. Um, because, yeah, I think the accommodation of it makes for fertile ground for that to uh, flourish. And all those folks that were there went back to communities and congregations where they felt comfortable, right? Maybe they wouldn't tell everybody, hey, I was there, but some of them did. Some were live streaming and talking all about it and there were pastors there. And so we do have to, I think, be be sober in our assessment that this is something that is embraced broadly. It isn't just a fringe movement um, and that we have to confront and oppose um, wherever we're at to show that there are other expressions of Christianity that are opposed to this. this there is a moral call right? From our Christian faith that is open to our, you know, other religious traditions and our, our, you know, neighbors that are secular and how we want to be able to live in a world where everybody has access and can flourish. Um, And it isn't just for the chosen few, the the people, the us. Um, I think that's what we, we have to do and recognize that it is, it is broader than, than just this fringe. Yeah. And we're almost out of time, but I just, I think I got one, one more question that, that, uh, and then I'm going to let you have the last word, but you, you, you kind of um, make this point that you're making right now that it's so important not to just see this as a fringe movement of um, uh, just real, really small group Mm -hmm. of folks. Um, And there have been courageous voices, right? I mean, Colin Kaepernick shows one, form of courage, uh, kneeling on the field, taking a knee, um, you know, Rosa Parks, his courage looked different from Dr. King's and they, you know, courage has a lot of different forms. Yeah. Um, and Russell Moore was one of those that I, I, you know, I don't agree with him on everything. In fact, he had me on his radio show, uh, and he, he's got a show called, um, uh, tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah. And so we talked, you know, he invited me on as someone that doesn't see eye to eye on everything, but I yeah. really admired his courage. And and mm-hmm. you contrast his witness to Al Mowers, who began to sort of deny this and not use language uh, mm-hmm. of rioting, but, you know, the event at, at 9-11, I mean, at the uh, January 6th. But Russell Moore, I mean, just to, to uh, use his language, he was the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention, and this was like kind of a fault line that began to form in the the Southern Baptist. And he said, the sight of Jesus saves and God bless America's signs by those violently storming the Capitol is more is about more than just inconsistency is it is about a picture of Jesus Christ and of his gospel that is satanic. 
mean, he didn't mince words, right? And yeah. he, you, you have several other really great quotes by Dr. Moore. Um, but then you had Al Moore, who was sort of calling this horrifying at first. And he also re- like flipped back and forth on his endorsement of Trump. And, and yeah. I think that actually represents a lot of people that yeah. are going, yeah, what happened on January 6th? That was nuts. I would have never done that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm still going to vote for Trump because of abortion or, you know, whatever it is. So maybe just we, we can say a little bit more about that. And then I, I'm going to let you close this off in a sec, man. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I think one thing I wanted to highlight is that um, there are conservative Christian voices that that do oppose Christian nationalism. Right. And and probably, you know, see the world differently from me in a number of ways, both the faith and and politics and what I, what I hope to show is that um, there can be a, a political conservatism in one sense that that does oppose Christian nationalism. There can be a religious conservatism that does oppose that and that we can work together in that. And that's one reason why, you know, I, I differ probably from Dr. Moore on, on things like you, you mentioned as well. Um, but on this, you know, there are other voices there that are pushing back. Um, and yeah, and Al Mohler, I think there were parts where early on he was speaking language similar to how I would, where, you know, we're looking at the symbols there and saying that it is tragic for the Christian faith that it's there. But over time, we see him walking that back or just ignoring it. And and I think that's where we have to be clear too and saying, no, 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 we need to hold the line here on this narrative that this is opposed um, to what we believe is faithful expressions of Christianity. Um, and I yeah. think that's, you know, an important part, an important step of, of what we should be doing um, to maintain that clarity um, and to raise that call. Um, because I think then that too gives other folks courage to speak out and say, yeah, you know what, that doesn't, that doesn't represent me. And we do need to oppose this. And, and that I think that's part of it as well. Just knowing there are others on the journey. That's what's, you know, given me hope. Um, and, and we're, we're in it together and we're pushing together. And I think that that's part of it, right? Is we may not see it. We may not get there, but we're going to be a part of moving towards it. And I think that's the hope. So good, man. So good. Well, um, this is the book y'all American idolatry. And Andrew Whitehead is the author. Uh, what a great hour together. I did have a closing quote I was going to read to send us out, um, unless you have uh, anything else you wanted to, to bring us, brother. Any, by the way, the last chapter of the book is full on fire. I thought I was going to start hearing the the the, the like organ and the altar call right there. I mean, you, yeah, yeah. you the whole end, because it's, it's just a beautiful um, sermon in, in itself. And it, you just oh, bring thanks. it all together. But um yeah. Any closing words, man? No, I mean, I just thank you for the the time, the conversation. And, you know, for me, it's it's more of, um, you know, the knowing that we're on the journey together is what can give us hope that it's a shared a shared journey. Um, and I think that's what's been, you know, helping me along. And so just to encourage other folks to that, to jump in where you're at and, and to start that journey and to know that you're not alone. Um, I think that's the beauty of 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 our faith and 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 what we can bring for each other. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And one of the things that you say in the book is that uh, um, you know we need to sort of do an inventory or an audit of the voices that we're listening to that yeah. are shaping us. The books yeah. on our shelves. You you of course love James Cone as I oh, do. Oh yeah, that that's a life changing book. Yeah. 
thought you'd go in. And um, uh, there's that old proverb, you know, that until the lion tells his side of the story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. <laughs> yeah. You know, So hearing the voices that have been on the other side of yes. these histories, uh, yes. native voices, African-American voices, you know, voices of LGBTQ folks and those who are marginalized uh, historically mm-hmm. and even now um, yeah. to uh, make sure that they are, we're, we're listening to that theology from the bottom up rather than the top down. So you do yeah. such a great job of that. And on that note, I thought I would close with a quote that you have in the book from Dante Stewart, who's an incredible voice today, uh, been a friend of RLC, done stuff with him. And uh, this is a just a beautiful uh, quote that you have near the end of your book. This is Dante Stewart. Christians must dismantle a world where we believe God wants black people to enjoy the best things in heaven while white people enjoy the best things on earth. That's a good one. That's a good one right there. And uh, you've got a lot of uh, so powerful quotes of of yours and of so many others. And that declaration that you have, Andrew, to to give up on Christian nationalism is not to give up on Christianity. And that that's a great place to close us with tonight, um, especially of folks that are really, really appalled by what really tries to camouflage itself as Christianity, but doesn't look like Jesus at all. Keep Mm -hmm. leaning in, read Andrew, keep joining us at Red Letter Christians. I mean, that's what we are about is a Christ-centered Christianity that is critical of uh, this heresy of Christian nationalism and of white supremacy. And uh, so thanks for tuning in tonight. Thank you for the generous hour you've given us, Andrew. And we'll keep in touch, man. Bless y'all. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.